0: Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome and thanks for joining us. I just spoke with Meredith Ray about her really fascinating new book, Daughters of Alchemy, Women and Scientific Culture in Early Modern Italy. This came out in 2015 with Harvard University Press. Now, the interview and the book itself are full of incredible, strong, fascinating, talented women. These are women including Caterina Sforza, who we probably are all familiar with in terms of her leadership, her strength in the context of early modern Italy, but may not be familiar with in terms of her interest in and her production of recipes around medicine and alchemy. The women also include authors or putative authors of books of secrets they include women who are engaging both in poetic work and in other kind of work in 16th and 17th century debates over women and their capabilities and their strengths and their qualities and what they should or shouldn't be engaging in and they include some writers of epic poems of letters apothecaries and some just really fascinating figures who are all flourishing in some way in the context of Renaissance Italy. So the book takes us into, a, it is really sensitive in taking us into not just the context in which we should understand and we can understand the work of these women and by, and by these women and with these women for history of science, uh, history of early modern science in particular, but Ray is also really, really sensitive to the literary qualities of the Mm -hmm. text that she's discussing. And so there's a lot to learn here for listeners and for readers also about how to navigate and be attentive to the literary form of a dialogue, of a poem, of a recipe, and to bring that kind of attentiveness to how we integrate these sources into our stories about the history of science. So it's a fascinating book. It's a really, really interesting um, set of vignettes and set of cases. So I hope you have a chance to read it. And thank you so much for listening. I'm here today to talk with Meredith Ray about her new book, Daughters of Alchemy. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Meredith, and thanks very much for making the time to talk with me today. I'm really looking forward to it. Thank you, Carla. Thanks for inviting me. So, Meredith, let's start by talking a little bit about how you came to the field, and specifically, what brought you to work on early modern Italy?
1: Um, I... Was always interested in the Renaissance, and um, I was uh, an Ital- I studied Italian in college, and then um, I lived in Italy for a while after college. And during that time, I did a master's degree, and um, just sort of realized that I wanted to keep working on Renaissance literature and particularly women's literature. So I ended up doing a PhD at. Um, University of Chicago so that I could work with Elisa Weaver, who does um, a lot of work in the field of uh, convent culture and convent plays and things like that. Um, So initially, I was really interested in figures like uh, Archangela Terraborti, who was a 17th century nun and um, proto-feminist who wrote these really amazing works. And I've edited a few of those with a colleague of mine, Lynn Westwater. Um, So that's kind of where I started with... um, renaissance italy and i did my uh dissertation on um letter books women's letter books in um, the early modern period and then that developed eventually into my first book which was um called writing gender and um women's letter collections of renaissance italy i think it's, it's been one it's been a while <laughs> i forget the <laughs> title. i know how uh, that goes yeah <laughs> Um, so that was where that was where I started, but it was kind of a long it was a long standing interest. Although I wasn't always sure that I was going to go into academia. Okay.
0: So how did you come to focus on women writers about science in particular? Um, given that broader context, what brought you to a kind of history of science focus for this project?
1: Yeah, so that um, you know, I I'm trained as a as a literary historian and, um, I'm always, you know, I remain really interested in, in texts and, um, how they're constructed and, um, how gender is represented in them and things like that. But, um, I also just really, um, you know, I've sort of decided the, the further I get in my career that I just want to follow my material where it takes me. So, um, with this book, with this new book, I had, uh, when I was, when I was working on the first book on a, on letter collections, there was this one book in particular that I worked on by Hortensio Lando, who was, a uh, um, he was, well, Italian scholars call him a polygrapho, which means basically that he was a writer, a professional writer who just wrote, you know, for the market and all kinds of genres. And I was looking at this one book he had, um, put together that was called the letters of uh, valorous women. And it was a letter collection by all kinds of different women, some of whom really you know existed and some of whom he invented himself. And they um, were discussing for the most part matters related to the Renaissance debate over women. So, you know, whether or not women should be educated or what kind of mothers should be, they be, or should they breastfeed all these kinds of questions that were, you know, kind of in the, in the atmosphere at the time. And there'd be a letter arguing, you know, on one side and then another arguing the other side and there was like this little um, like cycle of letters in the midst of that book where suddenly they were talking about alchemy hmm. and, um, for the most part present you know he's presenting it in a, um, in a negative view as something mostly because he thought it was it was frivolous and distracting from you know what people should really be focusing on which was scripture but um, there was a couple of these kind of detailed letters with alchemical recipes and then at the same time there was a series of letters about um, medical recipes and I had not come across that kind of material at to that point point. and so when I was researching that book it just struck me as something really interesting and really strange and i I knew i wanted to come back to it so i um i mentioned it briefly in the in that first book and then i kind of you know put it aside knowing that i was going to come back to that and so um when i started the next project it really grew from there because i um i started reading uh books of secrets so these uh printed books. Um, there's also a a manuscript tradition of books of recipes. So, um, the kind of thing William Eamon has done a lot of work on this, um, but they they combine medical recipes, cosmetic recipes, alchemical recipes, you know, pyrotechnics, things for making invisible ink and poison and like all kinds of things. You know, all in one book. And I realized that you know that book by Lando was capitalizing on what was a really really popular genre. So he, as a professional writer, was like, oh, I, I, I should work that into my book too. Um, so that's kind of how I got started. And it was, um, it was challenging, uh, really, because I am not trained in history of science. And, and furthermore, I was, you know, I was in graduate school at a time where, you know, they, the idea of the, the national, uh, the boundaries of your national literature and of your discipline that was very much in place. So, you know, I, I studied Italian literature um, With kind of a narrow focus, I think. And so it took me a while to kind of, you know, get used to this idea that I can move outside of, you know, that discipline or that, um, even that nation, and I can um, approach things from a much wider perspective. And that was really exciting for me when I finally realized that it takes a lot of work, of course, but I'm allowed to do that. And so um, I ended up Well, what I hope I ended up doing in the book was sort of combining my interests as a scholar of literature with my interest in history of science.
0: Absolutely. And I think so many of those of us who uh, self identify as working in the history of science or working as a historian of science kind of found our way to the field incidentally, right? Yeah. It's kind of rare to have an experience as an undergraduate where you, first of all, know that history of science exists as a field and right. have an opportunity, right, to like figure that out early enough that you can actually make that a focus self consciously of what you're working on. So I think that's one of the things that makes the field so exciting exciting to read and to work in right Yeah, I agree. So women's untapped potential in the liberal arts, um, as you put it in the book, according to 16th century writer, Moderata Fonte, was a kind of buried gold. I love this, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. The untapped potential of women as a kind of buried gold. And this becomes a sort of touchstone for what happens and what unfolds throughout the book that we're talking about today. The book explores contributions of women to the landscape of scientific culture in the 16th and 17th centuries. Or roughly from about 1500 to about 1623. So here we have women as practitioners, as you describe it in the introduction, as patrons, as authors, as readers, they have, um, they're engaged with very practical kinds of pursuits. Um, that have something to do with science and also literary engagements with natural philosophy. And they're doing this in homes, in letters, in salons, at the court, in vernacular literature, and in academies, um, and also in salons. So we'll see a lot of what's going on there um, in the hour to come. So to kind of lay the foundation here from which we'll move on, why is Italy an ideal context for this? What about the culture of early modern Italy is producing this kind of engagement among women with science.
1: Well, um, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of. Thing, I mean, certainly there's been a lot of work going on um, in in other areas as well, and um, you know, Italy is the the area I know best, so that um, is what initially drove me to look at Italy. But there's also so much going on there. I mean, Italy is is Galileo, right? And I I um, I. Realize that we, when we think about things like the scientific revolution or the idea of the scientific revolution, you know, we think about Galileo, but then we don't think necessarily about um, all the people surrounding Galileo. And um, mm-hmm. yet, there, Italy was a, was a, a cultural context that really, in a lot of ways, I think, um, allowed for and fostered the participation of women in intellectual culture. And this is sort of. Um, you know, it's interesting because the the field is sort of uh, evolving to to look at this more, to look at, um, you know, from, from this idea kind of back in the 80s and 90s, maybe, where, um, you know, the, the the thought was more, well, women didn't have any, um, you know, women weren't supposed to be writing and women were all these works were going, you know, were being written about how women should stay at home and they shouldn't be educated and all these things. Um you know, I think scholarship is now showing increasingly that that's prescriptive literature, but it doesn't necessarily reflect what was actually happening culturally. And so um, you have you actually have this context where, you know, maybe not in completely formalized uh, places. So maybe not always in a in an official academy, but in all these other forms of intellectual networks, you have women participating and you have um, interactions and collaborations between men and women. Um, so, and, and you also have women writing and publishing in Italy in a way that I think doesn't happen, um, so remarkably in, um, other countries at this time. So, um, you know, there's this famous, uh, passage by, uh, an Italian scholar, Dione, Dione Salty, who says, you know, in the Renaissance, you know, only at that time do you finally start to see women as a group publishing just in this one area. And, um, you know, of course, we've since had lots of people arguing that, in fact, it's it's bigger than that. It's not just in like the middle of the 16th century, but it continues into the 17th century. Women are writing and publishing and interacting. So, um, I really, um, I really wanted to come at this from that perspective. You know that. Um, there's Italy as kind of this uh, crucible of all this intellectual development and um, empiric, empirical culture and all these things and that that wasn't just being done by men it you know, wasn't Italy wasn't inhabited only <laughs> only by by men and um, I really wanted to look at the ways that women were um, interacting with these cultural developments, not not just on their own, but in uh, collaboration with uh, men.
0: Great. So we move um, in the book from a kind of interest in science in general to focusing on alchemy in particular. Now, it's not necessarily news um, to those of us who Um, work on alchemy, maybe read about alchemy, that there's a kind of gendered component to how we understand alchemy, right? And you describe this in in the introduction. There's a lot of gendered imagery, specifically Mm -hmm. in alchemy. Um, You know, listeners might think of the chemical wedding. Um, You talk about the ways that alchemical operations are sort of um, roughly comparable to operations that are done in a kitchen, and you take us into all the ways that a history and discourse of alchemy is actually run through with this very gender imagery and discourse but then we move specifically from that to looking at the kinds of ways very practically, if we move from the discourse of alchemy to the practice of alchemy, that women are actually central to what's going on. And there are some really amazing and fascinating examples of how and where and who um, is uh, kind of the focus of this history. And the first one um, is someone who we meet in the very first body chapter. This is an amazing woman named Katarina Sforza. And anybody who's uh, watched the Borgias... We'll be very familiar with Caterina Sforza. So this chapter brings us into the Romania, and it looks at Caterina Sforza's experiments with alchemical recipes. So for those listeners who may not have had the opportunity to watch the Borgias and thus you know, learn <laughs> all about Caterina Sforza, can you introduce her a little bit for listeners? What do we need to understand about her um, in order to understand um, what she's doing here with alchemical recipes and, and practical alchemy?
1: Um, Sure. Well, Caterina Sforza is just this incredibly complex and fascinating figure, and um, she, you know, as such, has been studied over the, you know, centuries, um, mostly for her importance as a um, political figure. So she was the um, she was an illiterate. An illegitimate uh, Sforza daughter. She she grew up at the court in Milan. Um, she was married off to Girolamo Riario when she was quite young um, in in the hopes that that would help cement an alliance and also um, sort of uh, make Im- the areas of Imolan fully secure for um, the Pope and also for the Sforza family. So she spent some time in Rome and then with her husband went to um, to Forli, and they um, set, you know, they set up their court there, and you know, the fame. There's a couple really famous stories about um, about Caterina that you, you know you have to take them all with a grain of salt, of course. But the the, the famous stories are after the death of um, she she lost a few husbands to assassination. So after the death of the first one, um, she uh, she took over the. Um, she took over the running of the of the state so instead of you know giving up she held on to the, the fortress and um, there's a famous passage where um, her children are being held hostage she's inside the fortress and her children are being held hostage outside and they think that because they have her children she'll surrender and um, the famous story that's related by Machiavelli and others goes that she appears on the ramparts and she sees that they have their children she lifts up her skirts and points underneath them and says that doesn't matter because i can make more children and so there's kind of this um mythology of of sports in a way as this um almost unnatural woman right like a woman who's so political and so masculine and so um so much in the in the area of uh, running the state and battle and all of that um that she's not, she can't also be a, a natural mother. Um, so she's got an, she's got this image as a really fierce kind of uh, Renaissance uh, leader. Mm-hmm.
0: I but kind of think of that moment in Machiavelli as Caterina Sforza's Doritos moment, right? Crunch
1: all you want, we'll make
0: more. Exactly.
1: <laughs> Sorry. Exactly. <laughs> um, so I think that you know, for the most part, that's what uh, when when people that you know know that name, the the association of Katrina is with all these, um, political developments and occasionally these, you know, crazy stories about her. Um, she, you know, she, she was married several times. She may or may not have had a few secret marriages. Um, so, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of aspects to her. Um, and, What is really, what was really interesting to me is, you know, that sometimes when you read about her, you'll find in a footnote or in a passing sentence, something about the fact that like, oh, and she did alchemical experiments. So, you know, that was really where I got started with that, because I was like, what is this? Oh, and she did alchemical experiments. What does that mean? Um, and so as I started researching her, uh, what I came to realize is that not only did she do these experiments, but she was part of these, um, you know, this network, this larger network of of people, men and women from all different parts of society that were all exchanging Recipes for not just for alchemy but for cosmetics and for medicines and things like that.
0: And you're showing here in this chapter that recipes are actually a form of currency. And there's a really wonderful account of these epistolary networks and the ways that recipes and also secrets um, Mm -hmm. are being, and and we'll talk more about what that means, right, in this context, what a secret is here, um, are being. Passed to and from other people, and it's a really fascinating way of understanding epistolary networks um, specifically, right? Mm -hmm. She's compiling her discoveries, her alchemical, pharmaceutical, um, cosmetic discoveries in a manuscript called Experiments. Now, Mm -hmm. only one copy, as you describe here in this chapter, is extant today, Mm -hmm. so this seems like a fascinating source. Can you talk to us about this manuscript? Um, What is it like? What's in there? And what was it? What did what did it involve to actually get access to this manuscript and and do work with it?
1: Sure, I mean that I think was um, it was really the the highlight of writing this book for me it was. Um, researching and tracking down that manuscript, it was really a, a great experience. So the manuscript is in a, a private collection today. Um, and it's owned by um, lovely people who really want, you know, they they wanted to remain anonymous. So that was, you know, the condition for me being able to look at the manuscript. But I, you know, the way that I found it, certainly anyone else who was interested could, could also find it. It was just, you know, like an old fashioned uh, detective method of, I saw a footnote Somewhere I tracked that footnote to another footnote. Eventually, I realized that I should um, start contacting. You know, in Italy they have a a particular bureau that oversees the private archives. So I contacted one of those bureaus, and eventually I was able to, um, you know, narrow down to a few possibilities. And through that bureau, um, they, on my behalf, contacted the owners of this manuscript to see if they would allow me to come and see it. So when I finally found, it took me a while, and. when I finally found it, it was, it was very exciting (laughs) for me to, to, um, to have success. Uh, because the, the manuscript has been, um, transcribed in, in part, not in full, um, in, in a 19th century biography by her, uh, by Pasolini, uh, the big biographer and compiler of all the of documents. So there, you know, there is that, um, that source, which is, which is great, but it's not totally complete. Um, so then once I had made contact with the owners of the, of the manuscript, I traveled to Italy and, um, just had this wonderful, um, week where I went, you know, I, I met them and they allowed me to come into their library which was beautiful and has many other things besides Fortz's manuscript and it was just this amazing experience of sitting in a room surrounded by these incredible books and literally having this manuscript in front of me and them bringing me espresso <laughs> to drink oh, wow. as, I, as I read which doesn't really happen in the rare books room usually <laughs> um, it was it was it was really lovely and they were so generous to, to let me come in and look at it and it was just a, it was a wonderful experience um, that but the sound, manuscript-
0: that sound you hear by the way is the sound of hundreds of graduate students dropping what they are currently researching <laughs> and looking into taking up early- Early modern um, Italian history.
1: Right? Sorry. I mean, that's the kind of thing we love to do, <laughs> is like you track down, down the footnotes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, <laughs> go on, please. Um, so then the manuscript itself is is uh, is, is interesting. It, it's, it's quite extensive. It's compiled in more than one hand. I mean, it's not her hand. It's a copy that was made by a friend of her son's um, in the early... Fifteen hundred. So, uh, you know, so it says, so there are, some, there are some issues there, of course, as in any manuscript of, you know, exactly what was contributed by whom. Um, but the preface explains that he has copied it down exactly as he, as he found it. And then um, we have, you know, so one of the things I wanted to establish was, you know, is this really... Based on her manuscript, and so that's what tracking down these, um, or trying to kind of map these intellectual networks she had helped me to do because it's so clear from the letters that she did actually exchange with people that she was ex- she was exchanging recipes and collecting you know soliciting them, offering them, um, and we also have letters between her and her son that seem to make reference to this same manuscript, which she clearly wanted him to have um,
0: were there any moments for you as you were working with the manuscript, um, uh, that were particularly exciting or any aspects of the kinds of recipes that were talked, talked about in this manuscript or collected in this manuscript that were especially fascinating for you? I mean, your, um, for example, your description of some of the stuff that was happening in the letters in this chapter, you know, how to use pomegranates, um, cosmetically and medically, recipes for mm-hmm. how to keep your breasts small, mm-hmm. which I was super happy that that was a fashion at some yeah. point somewhere. <laughs> I was like, thing, yes, yeah. I am in fashion in Renaissance. Italy, but, you know. but were there any other moments um, in that manuscript that were just kind of aha moments for you?
1: Well, I think that what you can really see um, in looking at a manuscript that you don't see in a transcription are, um, well, first of all, the, the different layers of authorship that might go into it, right? So you can start looking at things like how many hands are involved. And it clearly was at least two hands. Um, You can also see like how the paper is used and how um, often there would be a recipe and then someone would have written in the margin, like, you know, this one really works, or this one is better, or they'll add, you know, some instructions to it. So that really allowed me to get a sense of you know, this object is something that was that was actually used. It wasn't like just meant to. It, you know, it's not beautiful. It's not beautifully produced. It wasn't um, it wasn't meant to be a gift to somebody or something like that. It was. I, I believe it was really meant to, you know, serve as something useful to her, you know, to her, to her son. Um, So looking at it allows you to kind of see those markings that you wouldn't get from just looking at a transcription of it. Um, I was also able to see, and this you do see in the transcription, but it's much more remarkable when you actually see it in person, is that um, she used a code to... in some of the recipes, not in all of them. So the code is given on the first part of, on the first page of the manuscript. And it's, you know, I, I applied it a few times and it, it works pretty well. So it's not meant to be an unbreakable code. So then what is its purpose, right? Like what, if you're going to, <laughs> if you're going to put things in code and then you're going to give the key to it right away, then it's, you know, it's not that hard to break. Um, and what I came to believe was that really what she was doing was using that code to just signal when something was really important. And so, um, it's almost always used just for, uh, alchemical recipes. And there are plenty of alchemical recipes that are not in code, but when they are in code, um, or in Latin, some of them are also in Latin, she goes back and forth. It seems to signal like something that was particularly complex or or valuable, as if to say that, um, not that you couldn't access it, but that if you wanted to access it, you had to put in a little bit of extra work. Um, So that was more noticeable to me um, in seeing the manuscript than in having looked at the transcription of it.
0: Great. So the manuscript had um, very practical kinds of recipes for curing headache, fever, Mm -hmm. epilepsy, syphilis, for lightening the hair, improving the skin, making poisons, producing gems and gold and other things. And this was part of a broader fascination with secrets and with literatures of secrets in early modern Italy, especially in court settings. Now, as we move to Chapter 2, Chapter 2 looks at the vogue for printed books of secrets in 16th century Italy. Now, like the recipes um, that we talked about in the context of the first chapter, secrets were also a form of currency. But here, um, in contradistinction to what listeners might assume, and certainly what you know, I assume when I read that um, or hear that word, secrets weren't things unknown. But here, no. secrets are things that are proven, they're tested, they're found reliable. Now, you show here in the second chapter that many books of secrets were targeted at female readers. Um, So can you talk a little bit about that? How do we know that? And how did these books of secrets manage to do that?
1: Um, Yeah, that's a good question. So... um I think that, that part of what is going on there is that, you know, as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, you know, that um, so much of the the foundations of alchemy are based in these um, kind of male-female binaries. And there's so many associ- associations of the alchemical um, experiment and the alchemical product with, with women, right, with the female body and um, the female reproductive system and all of that. So I think there's... Um, there's this idea that that women may have um, in the history of alchemy, some particular um, connection to that process that makes them valuable. And um, so that there is for, for publishers, there is an added value in connecting a recipe or a secret with a woman because it makes, it gives it an added sense of authority um, sort of, Ironically, right? That doesn't happen certainly for women in all in all areas. Um, so, from there, what I wanted to look at was you know who who was writing these books, who was reading these books, how you know how are they being used, and certainly they're being used by by men and women, and often the same book is being used by men and women. But um, to be able to it, try to kind of establish those things, you know, I I would I went through and I looked at what kinds of recipes were being offered, and certainly there's, um, you know, many of these, there's, there's so many of these books, and, and many of them will have sections on um, female medicine, right, like, the, you know, for childbirth and lactation and things like that, which certainly does not mean that they were meant for women. They were, you know, easily could be meant for uh, male physicians who were, you um, more or less taking over that uh area at this time but there are also many recipes then that are specifically for um women's cosmetics and and often will say um you know for (laughs) you know lipstick for women um so there's the kinds of recipes themselves and then there's um the introductory material which sometimes we'll talk about um women the um the introduction to um one of Ruchelli's books, for example, talks about a, a kind of academy of secrets that existed in which she specifically mentions women visiting it. Um, so I tried to look at those kinds of things, like, you know, what is uh, what are the titles and the prefaces saying? Um, what, do, what do the recipes say? What kind of information are they offering? Who could use that? I mean, again, certainly men used um cosmetics and they used hair coloring and all of that as well. But often it will specifically say which is for men and which are for men and which are for women. Um, and then I I spent some time, um, looking at this, uh, book that's attributed to Isabella Cortese, which was a really interesting uh, case because that's the only book that is specifically attributed to a female, um, author. And, um, it says in the title that the the recipes are meant for female readers. Um, and then of course it offers all kinds of, um, all kinds of recipes, including for, you know, male impotence and other things. So it was clearly aimed at a readership of both sexes in the end. Um, and that was just an interesting, um, it's an interesting example because there's so much debate over who authored it. And I, you know, I'm not really ready to come down on on either side right now. But I will say that it does seem to me that, you know, in the absence of like, clear biographical data, people are very quick to assume that women writers were actually men. (laughs) When it's a male writer, that's not like the automatic assumption. So I want to be very careful about making that assumption. But that said, there are certain, um, you know, oddities about it and things that are a little bit mysterious um, some people think that she was really uh ruchelli another well-established author um you know someone has pointed out that the word cortese is an anagram for the word cigarette and so nice. <laughs> yeah <laughs> so um Anyway, so I think that I, I tried to take all of those things into consideration, authorship, readership, and then the material in the in the books itself.
0: So in addition to taking us into some examples of some of these works and um, The Secrets of Senora Isabella Cortese is one of them, you also bring us into another very, very successful and apparently very widely circulating book called The Secrets of Alexis of Piedmont, also mm-hmm. from the 16th century. The mm-hmm. chapter also looks at the influence of the books of secrets on other early modern literary genres so letter collections, um, dialogues, etc. And you mention or you talk um, in detail about two of them. One of them is a book you've already talked about, right? This is the book by Hortensio Lando, his collection of letters of many various uh, valorous women from 1548. And you also talk about a book by Alessandro Piccolomini from 1539. So can you talk a little bit about what's happening there? What are some of, for you, the most interesting ways that these other early modern modern literary genres are picking up and using and engaging with the literature of secrets.
1: Um, yeah, so that um, is really the point at the book where my my literary side, you know, starts to take over again. And I was really interested in kind of following this scientific culture into these various literary venues and seeing how it was being used. And, um, you know, as we were talking about earlier, I had sort of, bookmarked that first for uh, the Lando book, and then I wanted to see where else I could find it. And, um, you know, I was interested to see how um, how it was presented and how, how prevalent it was in literary works. And you, you do have to look a little bit. It's not always... Um, it's not always the main subject of a, of a book. And so I think that's why it has, you know, these kinds of scientific subtexts have gone unrecognized because it's, you know, it's not, it's not always the whole book is about science, but it's just woven into the, um, the narrative. And, um, in the, in the book, Rafaela, it gets used, um, in the sense of part of, part of this debate over women, which tries to prescribe women's, you know, tries to figure out and identify what, are the appropriate behaviors and roles for women and then to, you know, try to prescribe how women should, should behave. And in both the Lando and the, the Rafaela, um, science kind of becomes part of that debate. So, um, you find these long recipes in La Rafaela, which is really supposed to be a, a satire. It's not really supposed to be telling us what we should do. You know, when she's giving these complex recipes for cosmetics, that's not what women are actually supposed to be doing. They're not supposed to be vain and they're not supposed to be wearing makeup and all of this. But the, the result is that you get these really clear detailed recipes (laughs) that someone could go and follow, presumably. Um, so I found that, I found that interesting and it kind of complicates a, a reading of the, of the text. And then, um, you can also just learn, I, I felt that you could also learn interesting things about the, the practice um, by reading these literary works, because in that book, for example, you realize that it's not that women were just, you know, whipping these things up on their own. They were going to their, they had a, you know, they would often have like a favorite apothecary that would be known for making one particular thing. And they would go to that apothecary to get, you know, whatever it was, the cosmetic or the the medicine. Um so I wanted to I, so that that chapter kind of leads into the next by um, looking at the way that science becomes part of this larger cultural debate over women um, and 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 what. You know what should be the scope of their education and um, their role in society. And
0: this next chapter is also awesome. So this is uh, chapter three, and it looks at the literature of debate over women that flourished in the 16th and 17th centuries, as you've just um, described. Now, this chapter takes us into Venice, um, which I was—I just got back from the Biennale, so Mm, I was really excited (laughs) about this Venice stuff. So the chapter takes us into Venice um, through the works of. Two women. Um, One is Moderata Fonte and the other is Lucrezia Marinella, both of whom stressed um, in this chapter the capacity of women for scientific observation, among other things. And both are arguing uh, in some way in these works for women's equality or even superiority with regard to men. And they're really, really interesting constellations of works here that um, you're bringing us into. So let's take these women um, on um, one after another. Let's start with Moderata Fonte. Can you talk about her? Who is she? And for you, um, what's most fascinating about the kind of work that she's producing? in this chapter.
1: Sure. So, um, so Moderata Fonte and Lucrezia Marinella both are, um, you know, in a way, kind of canonical figures in the the history of um, early feminism at this point. I mean, feminism is maybe not the right word to use. Some people like to use pro-woman or proto-feminist, but both of them were writing um, about women's position in, in society. So, what was interesting to me in Fonte so Fonte is a um so she she was Venetian she died in uh sixteen hundred her work was published uh posthumously um and it was she, she you know it had been published in reaction to a particularly virulent um, misogynist work by Giuseppe Passi. And so um, the sort of Venetian editorial market kicked up and uh, or kicked in and um, you started to see some of these responses because, you know, again, I think that what, what we're realizing is that just because there were misogynist works circulating didn't mean that um, that was the whole of the... Uh, cultural landscape, there was a lot of reaction to that so so this work um, it 's called um, the mérito de the the women I think it's translated as uh, the worth of women and it 's a really she 's just a wonderful writer so you know the, the first thing about this book is that it 's just really fun to read it 's a dialogue between seven women, each of whom um, represents a different state so there 's you know everyone from the the young virgin to the married woman and there 's a Widow, and then there's a particular character who's chosen not to marry um, and seems to probably represent the, uh, the author's um, um, voice. And it's, they, they, they cover a lot of ground. It's divided into two days. So they gather together in this kind of all female environment in a garden. And in the first day, they talk about, you know, what is, why are, why are we so oppressed, essentially? Like, what has happened to allow this to come about? Because it's not, um, it's not natural law. And, and so, what has occurred? So, that's a really, it's a very compelling, um, it's a very compelling piece. And that is what has attracted the most attention by scholars. Because, you know, you have this really outspoken totally, you know, lucid early feminist that is asking these important questions. And so, you know, for, for me too, when I first read this book, you, you would read this first day and you would think like, yeah, right on, like, this is amazing. And then you would read the second day and you'd be like, what is she talking about? <laughs> so because the second day is all about medicine and science and medical recipes and natural philosophy and, you know, Why? how are earthquakes born and, you know, how many different species of fish are there in the sea and which kinds, you know, are good for this and which kinds are good for that. And it's really dense and confusing. And so, like, when I first read it, like many other people, I think you you get to that, and you kind of don't know quite what to do with it. But then coming back to it, when I was working on this project, you know, with all the context I now had, it was like, oh, well, I I see what she's doing, right? So she's putting together a kind of, in a way, a, a kind of book of secrets, where she's incorporating all kinds of different material, but she's specifically linking it to the debate over women. And she's specifically using it to show that the knowledge that women have in natural philosophy and medicine should be considered as, you know, a mark on their favor in their favor in the whole debate over women. So I found that really fascinating and she does it very, very um, overtly. So it's not, it's not even just that I'm interpreting and that she specifically makes those comments every time, you know, every time she has somebody explain, you know, uh, I don't know the causes of, of storms or something then, um, or comets or anything like that. Some, one of the characters will say something along the lines of, you know, and that's why women know so much more than men. (laughs) So, um, so it's, it's one of those things that it, it can seem really, um, confusing. And then all of a sudden it's like, it all falls into place and it's just this really brilliant, um, really brilliant piece of writing so um mm-hmm. I, I I enjoyed reading reading that one.
0: There's also a really um, wonderful uh, unfinished sh- chivalric romance. Sorry, I've got kind of to pronounce mm-hmm. it. Um, that you describe here called Floridoro, um, mm-hmm. I think. Um, which for any listeners who are particularly interested in the Odyssey um, and in that kind of um, the characters in the Odyssey, Odysseus, um, Circe, etc. There's some really interesting treatment in this work that you describe here. Uh, of not just Circe but also her daughter um, as these women who are really skilled in what we might you know consider kinds of scientific pursuits um, And so it's really really fascinating and I think um, when I teach, the Odyssey in the fall, I'm going to be referring to this. So thank you. Oh, great. (laughs) Really, really interesting. So the other woman who is featured in this chapter is Lucrezia Marinella. Uh And she is um, writing a lot of different kinds of things that you describe. But the chapter focuses on, in particular, an epic poem and a pastoral work. So there's an epic poem Enrico or Byzantium Conquered from the 17th century and then an early 17th century work Ar- Arcadia Felice. So for you, um, what's particularly fascinating about what's going on in her work?
1: Well, she's an interesting figure because like Fonte, she's kind of this, this touchstone for talking about early feminism because right at the same time as Fonte, she also published a work in response to the same misogynist work. So, um, so that early work of hers didn't use the dialogue form, it used a much more sort of um, formal treatise style response, also argued that um, uh, or had a section that also argued that women's learning and science was also evidence of their, um, equality, if not superiority to to men. So that's kind of the most well-known of her works. There's been a lot more attention to her just in very recent years. So we're starting to get a better picture of the, the incredible breadth of her career. But one thing that's quite interesting about her is that from this like very early, um, very outspoken work, um, she never really did that again. And at the end of her life, she sort of slightly drew back from that and modified some of her statements at the end of her life. So she's an interesting figure and she's a very orthodox figure in um, many ways. Um, and what I wanted to see was looking at some of these other works that she wrote she wrote um, she wrote all kinds of works she wrote a lot of uh, saints lives and things like that but then she she wrote the two that you mentioned and so I wanted to see like okay she you know she talks about science specifically in this early work and how does that um, you know does that get integrated into these other two works and um, and it does and what I what I was interested to see was that it's not um, it's not heavy handed in any way it's very natural so it becomes it's it's really becomes this narrative imaginative tool that can you know that adds depth to her um to her work but she's not coming at it the same way that fonte is she's not making it the the prime focus of the work and yet it's such a big part it's just woven into the the context um so she has um she has these figures and, and and really like these female communities in both of those works where there's um, a leader figure who's a, a woman who has this knowledge of natural philosophy that she shares with her, um, her ladies in waiting if or whatever we want to call them, the women that are there with her. And then also imparts to the, to the male characters that come through, so so women as these kinds of guides for passing on scientific knowledge, um, which doesn't necessarily mean that they are credited with inventing or discovering that knowledge. You know, we also have these. She creates these kind of complex lineages to explain how that you know knowledge was originally passed from someone's you know grandfather to father to this particular female figure, but the position of the, of the female figure is to um, impart knowledge about the natural world, which I just found, um, I found really interesting. And um, just stylistically, I found it interesting to see how it was woven into the the narratives as such an important part in structuring it.
0: And in Enrico um, in particular, we've got this cast of really amazing woman characters. Um, We've got a princess, Who's forced to cross dress as a shepherd? And yeah. Safety. We've got um a sort of uh, the daughter of an astronomer. Mm-hmm. We've got a magician. We've got a poet and a kind of handmaid, and it, it's just a really really interesting work. Um, it sounds like. Uh, so thank you for opening mm-hmm. that up um, for me and my ignorance and so no idea that these things even existed. And now I want to read more and more and more. Yeah. <laughs> so as we move to the fourth chapter, and this is the last body chapter of the work, we move to Padua and to Rome. And here we see that, as you put it in the chapter, by the early 17th century, women had begun to participate in scientific discourse in more kind of formal ways, sort of more deliberate ways. And you talk about them publishing treatises on natural philosophy, allying themselves with scientific academies, and also entering into correspondence with some really major scientific figures, and we'll see that happening in the second example here that we'll talk about. Now in Padua, we look at Camilla Erculiani's letters on natural philosophy from 1584. She was an apothecary in Padua, And she's an example that's really, really interesting in terms of drawing connections between what's happening for her in Padua and also Poland. Um, So you bring us into this really interesting epistolary network that includes Poland. Um, She's getting her work published in Poland. And she's also questioned by the Inquisition at one point. So for you, um, can you kind of open up um, Camilla Urquiliani a little bit for us? What's most important for you about her as a figure in terms? of what's happening here um, with her work in this chapter.
1: Sure. Um, Well, she's a fascinating figure um, about whom I wish we um, knew more. There's been um, some fantastic archival work done by um, Eleonora Carinci, so she's managed to track down some of the biographical background, which has been really helpful. Um, But... You know, who is this woman? She's a she's the wife of an apothecary, presumably an apothecary herself, um, who ends up writing a book on natural philosophy. I mean, there's um, I don't know of another book that's titled that way by an author, a female author in that uh, period. And then, you know, for reasons Presumably due to the content of the work, which is uh, is by no means orthodox, um, she's trying to you know find a, an explanation in science for the you know the biblical flood and things like that. Uh, she publishes it in Poland, so I got that got me interested in thinking about um, well, you know, how did those connections get established and why did she turn? To Poland, And what was she hoping hoping to do? And, uh, you know, there were two things that were interesting about this to me. One was that it, um, tied in so clearly to the, uh, to this whole debate over women that I was discussing in the, in the previous chapter, because in the, um, prefatory material, she dedicates the, the book to the queen of Poland. And she specifically says, as Fonte and Marianella do in their literary work, she specifically says, um, you know, women are as capable in the sciences and they just need to be able to have the opportunity to access scientific knowledge. So she also is specifically linking science to... The debate over women as this crucial missing element in the education of women. So um, I found that really fascinating and it's something that you do find um, not infrequently in the prefaces to science, like more specifically scientific treatises and um, even in uh, some of the scientific works by Piccolomini, for example. So, um, so she dedicates the work to to the Queen of Poland, and you know why specifically Poland? Probably because of the connections between Padua, Padua and um, Poland. There were. Uh, Polish students, scientists, doctors passing through her apothecary. I would imagine that's how that connection was made. Um, so that leads to lots of interesting questions about the role of the apothecary in general. And um, there's been some interesting work done on that. And then what's going on in Poland? And Poland at least has the reputation at this time of being somewhat more tolerant of um, heterodox views. So I imagine that that was her her thinking. She knew that she might run into trouble for some of the things that she said. So she um, tried to publish in Poland, or she did publish in Poland, but that didn't help her because she was still tried by the Inquisition, and very unfortunately, we haven't found those uh, documents yet. We only have kind of um, secondary uh, descriptions of them, so it would be very exciting to be able to find those, although I'm not sure that they exist anymore. Um, And the other thing that uh, was just interesting to me, you know, it's like when you write a book, you're not necessarily thinking about how these things are all coming together, but what I realized is that in the last chapter of that book what was happening was that my interests in epistolary culture were really all sort of coming back to the, the fore and, and um, integrating with this new interest in history of science because she uh, Erkuliani writes that book in the form of a book of letters. Um, so it's got, there's all these interesting aspects to explore, uh, from that point of view, you know, why doesn't she write it as a treatise? Why does she write it as letters? What is that doing for her that a treatise can't do? Who is this person that she's, um, Pretending she wrote to, did she really write to him? Is she just, you know, kind of setting him up there so that she can have a person to bounce her ideas off of? Um, So all those same questions that I've always been really interested in, in terms of epistolary uh, writing, are present in her, and also present in in Saroki, who's the second part of the chapter.
0: And as we come to Soroki, uh, last but not least, we, right? We come to the mm-hmm. end, um, probably, uh, or we come toward the conclusion of our conversation too. And this is a wonderful, wonderful example, I think, um, to kind of conclude with. So we come to Rome when we come to Margarita Soroki, and we come to somebody who is a really fascinating figure. She's hosting a salon in Rome that's very celebrated, and part of that salon was a figure that will be familiar, I imagine. To most listeners, <laughs> and that is a figure, Galileo Galilei. Okay, so I'm just gonna hear, um, hit the ball back to you just to kind of open that up. Who is Margarita, and what's going on with this relationship with Galileo Galilei? This is just completely fascinating.
1: So I think, you know, in some ways it's analogous a little bit to. Um the situation with Katrina Sforza. So, um, is known for, she's known for one particular thing. And then the scientific side of her has not been really fully explored. So the thing that she is known for, um, is this epic poem that she wrote. So very few women wrote epic poems at this time. She wrote a really, really long and complicated one, um, that was set in um, Eastern Europe and it's called the Scandervaede. And, that is what, you know, when you find references to her in anthologies or other works, usually it's with reference to her work as an uh, epic poet. Um, but she was also really deeply integrated into the, uh, the intellectual networks in, in Rome and throughout Italy. And... She corresponded with Galileo. So, you know, we, we know that. I'm not the first one to, to discover that. And the, the letters are contained in the, the national edition of Galileo's um, works. But no one has really focused specifically on that. She gets talked about occasionally in, in works that deal with Galileo, so sometimes from you know, she'll be a, a footnote or two in a work about Galileo, but she hasn't really been studied in, in her own right. And with respect to what does that correspondence tell us about, about her and her position in intellectual culture. And it's just very fascinating because um, we don't have a ton of material. My suspicion is that there is much more somewhere to, to, to be found, but Galileo comes to, to Rome early, early on in his uh, career. And he's trying to kind of, uh, Garner support for these discoveries that he talks about in the um, Starry Messenger, and at that time he attends her salon, and we know that because in very you know there's a lot of letters Galileo wrote a lot of letters, <clears throat> people wrote many letters about Galileo, so we, so we have evidence that he attended her salon, and at that time, um, probably through a, a mutual friend who was a mathematician uh, Luca Valerio, uh, who corresponded with Galileo on his own, they connected. And once Galileo went back to uh, Florence, uh, they struck up a correspondence. And the correspondence is just very interesting because it so so completely encapsulates the ways that uh, science and literature were just intertwined. And I think that was one of the, the big takeaways for me from writing this book was that, you know, these are not separate Issues And you can't really write about one without writing about the other. And in her case, it takes the form of um, she wants Galileo, who was also a writer and a Tuscan writer at that, which was the model, the literary model for style. Um, she wants Galileo to help her make her manuscript better and specifically make it more Tuscan. So she wants to send it to him and have him revise it, um, maybe change some of the, you know, order of the paragraphs and, and look specifically at the language and change things to Tuscan terms, except for in certain parts where she's like, but that, you know, that thing I I didn't put in Tuscan and I did that on purpose. So she's very specific about what she wants him to do. And he, um, he accepts. And what's interesting is that it's not made explicit, but we see, we only have one letter from him to her, and we have seven from her to him. And what we see in her letters is that there's this kind of um, um, implicit agreement between them that, you know, in exchange for him doing this for her, what she can do for him is that in Rome, where she's, um, she has this salon, she's affiliated um, with the, uh, the Academy of the Lynxes through Luca Valerio that she will defend him and she'll promote his works in Rome. And this is before he's gotten into anything particularly um, problematic because she um, seems to have been a pretty orthodox thinker. But um, with respect to things like um, satellites of Jupiter, she um, is happy to, um, to confirm those discoveries and to explain to people that she's seen them herself. And in fact, we have another series of letters between her and, um, Perugia, where uh, people write to her specifically to ask her opinion on this. You know that you know, people are saying that what you know what Galileo says he saw with the, t- with the telescope, they're not seeing. You know we're not sure if it's true. What do you think? And she writes back saying like I can confirm it. I saw it myself, and I saw this, this, and this too. Mm-hmm. So it's this really interesting um, relationship that that develops be- between them of um, kind of an exchange of. Intellectual services and and um, you know it, it's interesting because the, the the relationship comes to an end sort of abruptly and we don't really know why you know there's probably they either stopped writing each other we just haven't found any more letters yet um, and people have been very quick to to make negative assumptions about her and you know, about why that might have happened, that, you know, he wasn't quick enough with his response, you know, in editing her manuscript or things like that. And I think we just, you know, we have no grounds really to make those assumptions. Um, So there's a lot that we don't know yet, but it just opens up a lot of really interesting questions.
0: So, Meredith, we're now um, sort of toward the end of our time, and there's, of course, a ton of material, right, that we didn't have a chance to talk about. It's a very rich book. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners?
1: Um, well, I think we did manage to cover a lot of ground. I think, you know, right now I'm um, I'm still very focused on the galileo Saroki uh, correspondence and... Um, you know, the one thing that I, I mentioned in my book, but I haven't, um, I, I didn't develop there because it was, you know, something that I kind of realized as I was finishing the book, but I'm going to keep working on is um, that one of the things that they discuss in their letters is uh, judicial astrology. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of adds this, you know, additional dimension to that whole um, relationship where, you know, they're talking about literature, they're talking about astronomy, but they're also talking about astrology and what, you know, what does that mean? What is the place of astrology at that point in, um, you know, in Galileo's career, in Saroki's um, life, uh, judicial astrology has lots of problematic implications by this time. So I think there's just a lot more interesting uh, work to be done there.
0: So now that the book is out and congratulations on the book, what's next for you? What's currently inspiring you?
1: Um, so now I'm going to start working on, um, another monograph that is going to take me, um, out of Italy and, uh, well, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm thinking to like Eastern Europe and, um, Croatia and areas like that because one of the things that I found really fascinating in writing this was, for example, in that Erkuliani chapter when I started looking at those relationships between Padua and uh, Poland I I just found, found it fascinating and there's so much more to be done to be done there. So um, I think the next book is going to be looking at uh, Italian women um, abroad. Awesome.
0: Fabulous. Well, best of luck with that work. <laughs> um, I hope you. it takes you to Croatia, um, if possible to do some uh, taking in of the environment. If yes. So it's just looking forward to and it. it over yes. The summer, ideally. And thank <laughs> you so much for taking the time to talk with me, Meredith. It's really been a pleasure and it's just, it's a beautiful, beautiful book. So thank you.
1: Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed talking to you.
0: You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time.